Hey, New Life Gillette Church, we are thrilled you decided to listen to our teaching on your favorite podcast app. If you made a decision to follow Christ today, would you let us know by visiting yes.newlifegillette.com? Here is this week's teaching. So let me say welcome to those of you who are watching online. To the guys over at the prison, uh, to our friends at the jail, and those of you who are here in the room, we're in a series right now called Good, Good Father, and today we're going to focus in on that father word. God is our father, and we're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to reflect on God as father, and what does that mean for us? And then number two, we're going to say, okay, if I am a father, or if I want to be a father, what can looking at what kind of father God is teach me about being a father. I asked my dad a couple weeks ago uh, to tell me about what, what it's like being a father. What, what is the hardest part about being a father? This is what he responded in his text. He said, to parent, you got to be a father like God, a judge like Judy. And I was like, I don't know if that's the best example of a judge, but we got some pretty bad judges out there, so maybe. Uh, a psychologist like Dobson, a teacher and tent maker like Paul, a coach like Andy Reid. Hmm? Hmm? Good luck on that one. A provider like Joseph, a healer like Jesus, a comforter like the Holy Spirit, and an entertainer, here's a reference for you, like Petra. Anybody? Anybody? My dad, uh, we grew up on Petra. Who, if you, if somebody just said, who's Petra? Google it. Hmm. You want to hear the voice of an angel? Petra, old school Christian rock. Yeah. In other words, parenting is hard. You got to do a lot of things really well in order to be a good parent. And none of us can do it. None of us can be good at all of those things. Well, maybe we can, we can get better at all those things, but we're going to have weaknesses. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to mess up. And so today we're going to kind of focus in on what does God as Father teach us about the areas that we need to improve in parenting? Okay, so we're going to do this by looking at six attributes of God or six attributes of a good Father. The first one is this, God is present. You know, this is what makes God unique in all the world religions. God is present for us in a way that nobody else believes God is present. God is with us. You know, if a father is not present, it doesn't really matter how good of a father he is, right? You can get all the attributes correct, and if you're not present, it doesn't really matter. If you're always on your phone, if your life is consumed by whatever happened in the news, if all you care about is catching up on ESPN, if everything else is more important than your kids, then the rest of the list doesn't really matter. You might not always know what to do, but as fathers, we are called to do something, to, to make an effort, to do our best, to parent our kids. Question, when's the last time you laughed with your kids? For me, this is an important question because it reflects directly on how much time am I spending on my kids outside of just the necessary. Like, we all got to, okay, you got to make sure your kids are dressed in the morning and fed and all the mundane stuff. But the, 
that laughter proves that there's something else beyond just the what is necessary happening. If, if it has been more than a month since you have laughed with your kids, something is unhealthy. It could be one of many things, but something is unhealthy. Maybe for you, you just need to stop doing some things. Cut some things out of the schedule. Choose to play some games. Play a lot of games with your kids. Be the butt end of a joke. Pull a prank. Do something fun. But just be present. Allow the wisdom and the things that you have learned in your life to rub off on your kids. Jesus said this, I am with you always to the end of the age. Always. I am with you. Our God is with us. He spends time with us. Now, does this mean that dads can never go off to work? Does this mean dads, if they're called off to war, can't go off to war? Does this mean parents have to always be physically present? No, sometimes parenting requires us that we can't be like God and always with us. So I'm not saying you should always be present. In fact, maybe sometimes that's unhealthy. Maybe that turns into helicopter parent who wants to be in control of every single little thing that happens in a kid's life. That can be unhealthy. I think sometimes being present means being intentionally distant, letting them learn hard lessons, their experiences. Because if they're able to experiment and make some mistakes while they live in your home, then you're able to teach them from the mistakes that they made, the decisions that they made. You know, for most of history, parents of young kids were 20-somethings. For most of history, the people raising young kids were 20-somethings. Now, for the first time in recorded history, the average age of a parent, a first-time parent, is in the 30s. People are waiting longer and longer and longer to have kids. And I think the age of the parent has a definite impact on the kids. What is what are some things that we know that's different about 30-year-olds than 20-year-olds? A lot is different. Fully formed brain. Yes, it takes a while. Uh, 30-somethings are more risk-averse than 20-somethings. They don't take as many risks in their lives. So as a, res as a result, many of our kids are overprotected. In our 20s, we take risk. In our 30s, we're, we have no tolerance for risk. So our kids have not witnessed parents taking risks. They're overprotective as parents. Another side effect of parents being older when they're raising kids is that we have more money when we are 30 than we're 20, right? So we use our money in our parenting. So what happens? Many of our kids are under-challenged. We think that we can buy our kids' success. We give trophies to everybody who participates. We, we do whatever we can do to make it as easy on them as pro possible because we're trying to purchase their success. So what do you end up with? Not more successful kids. You just end up with a bunch of safe spaces and trigger warnings and weakness is what you end up with. But at the same time, we are under-challenging them. We are over-scheduling them. When you are 21, you do not have enough money for your children to play every sport, 
travel to every tournament, $10,000 a year on kids' sporting events. When we're in our 30s, we schedule them to death. Constant vacations, going to all the activities, involved in everything. Because we begin to think, you will have the opportunities that I never had. Well, sometimes not having an opportunity is good for us. Not participating in everything is good for us. Not getting everything we want is good for us. So honestly, a lot of times in our overscheduling of our kids, it's a very selfish act. We're trying to do the things that we didn't get to do when we were younger. And as a result, our kids become over-expected. We want them to give us what we didn't have when we were their age. We, we think, I will give you all the opportunities. And as a result, you've had all of the opportunities, so you need to produce. I have gave you all these opportunities, now you need to produce for me. Be successful for me. Get good grades for me. Make the team for me. Can I just say about sports? Let's let sports teach what they are good at teaching, the lessons that they are good at teaching, and then leave it there. Not fantasize about the pro sports and all this other stuff and set them up for failure. I think there's some good things to learn for, from sports. I played a ton of sports as a kid. But I think it's, it's, when it becomes all of our lives, all consuming our God, the, the primary use of our time, it's moved to an unhealthy place and it's being asked to provide what it cannot provide. Because here's the truth. Our time with our kids is short. We only have a little time to teach them, a little time to develop them. So when we are with our kids, we are present, we are intentional. And then even when we cannot be with our kids, they should know that we are motivated entirely by love. We are motivated by our love for them, not our love for self, our love for them and our love for God. That is our motivation. And all of what we teach, all of what we do is so that when they are adults, that the relationship with them and the relationship with God, both are still intact. That there is a friendship between us and them. And there is a relationship between both of us and God. That's our primary objective. Anything that distracts from that objective has to be eradicated. Deuteronomy says, be strong and courageous for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. This is great for us Christian parents. The great thing is that when we cannot be with our kids, we can tell our kids, God is with you. My kids don't sleep in our bed ever. Can I get an amen? That's, that, is not, that is not part of our habit. We have other things going on. But I am happy to tell my kids that God is with you in your bed. If you have a nightmare, if you are scared, I don't go down there and say, okay, come to my bed. I say, God is with you. In fact, every single day when I drop my kids off for school, the last thing I say to them every single day, I say, 
Jesus is with you. Every day. Why? I'm trying to do two things. Number one, I'm trying to give them comfort and confidence. Jesus is with you. When you feel alone in the lunchroom, when somebody is bullying you, when you feel left out, Jesus is with you. I'm also trying to give them a little bit of accountability, right? You thinking about doing something? You think nobody's watching? You think you'll get away with it? Jesus is with you. And I think, how do you parent without this? How do you parent with go discover yourself and go experiment and go explore and hope it turns out well? Jesus is with you. I need that. As a dad, I need to believe that it's not all on my shoulders. That if I make a mistake, then there's nothing else that can be done. I believe that the Holy Spirit, that God himself is present in this process and he is teaching my kids what I am not teaching them well. He is leading them when I am not. God is with you. Okay, number two, a good father is kind. Does your anger and frustration ever come between you and your kids? If so, that's sin. Now, I'm not saying anger is sin. The Bible says God gets angry. But when God gets angry, he is, his anger is pointed at people or at circumstances or at decisions or at anything that comes between him and his kids. That's what makes him angry. If the anger is coming between you and your kids, then that is not like God. To his kids, God is kind. God is gentle. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is forgiving. This is how he treats his children. Paul says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Don't you see? Does this mean nothing to you? Isn't this the example that we should follow? This is not the cool way to talk in our world. It's not cool for dads to be gentle or compassionate and kind. And honestly, this is not my natural tendency. My natural tendency is to scare my sons into obedience, right? And I, there is a place for healthy fear. There is a place for instilling some healthy fear in our life. But the apostle Paul said, can't you see that his kindness, God's kindness is intended to turn you from your sins? It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. So let's trust this advice. It doesn't seem like it would work. But I believe he's smarter than I am. So I'm going to trust his advice, his parenting advice here, and believe that kindness works. Now, when I spank my sons, I want them to be afraid of the spanking. I'm not saying that there is never a place for a healthy fear in our parenting. But that always leads to kindness, to the hug. They should always know that I love them above everything else, that my motivation is my love for them, that even my spanking is because I want to be kind to them. Last month on the Church 307 podcast, we had Wayne Muller, and he was talking about how to be a servant leader. And he, he gave this impar- incredible imagery of what it looks like to lead gently, to lead well, to leave, 
with, lead with kindness while being a servant leader. And he told us that while we are leading, we should periodically, not all the time, but every, every once in a while, ask those people that we are leading, what is it like on the other side of me? Sometimes I ask this to my staff. Not often. Every once in a while, I'll ask this to my staff. What's it like? Where am I getting it wrong? What am I doing well and where can I improve? This takes monumental strength, confidence, and humility to ask this question because you're going to hear some answers that you don't want to hear. You may be even brave enough to ask this to your spouse. You ask your wife, what's it like on the other side of me? Gentle, easy, be kind. I know there's a lot wrong. I know I make a lot of mistakes. I know the list is long. But I'm humble enough to ask the question. And Wayne on our podcast said he even asked this question of his kids. More often when they get older, what can I do better? Where can I improve? What are my blind spots? Okay, number three, good fathers are strong. Dads, we have a responsibility to be strong when the members of our family feel weak. When they are weak and fearful, we are courageous. Even when we don't feel courageous, we choose to be courageous. Why? Because our strength is not found in our physical bodies. Because our strength comes from God. God gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. I read multiple studies while I was preparing for this that show that it, you have until about the age of five to instill in your kids a sense of security. But if you can give them the correct uh, parameters and, and get, set them up properly to have a sense of security and strength in their lives, that feeling will go with them throughout their lives. It will affect their relationships later. It will affect the type of family they have later. Instill in your kids a sense of security, that you're with them, that you got their back, that you are strong and courageous when they are not. That's what our family needs from us. Psalm 118 says, the Lord is for me. So if he's for me, I will have no fear. Why? Because what can mere people do to me? Nothing. They are powerless. I am not a physical being. I am an eternal being. They can do nothing to, you can kill my body and it still does nothing to me because I am more than this body. Let's give this mentality to our kids. What can mere people do to us? They can't touch us. We are in God's hands. We don't cower to peer pressure. We don't cower to their demands. Why? Because my steps are ordered by God, not by man. And here's a big one. A good father is generous. Dads, I think we suck at this one sometimes. Because we got a lot of agendas. We got a lot of ideas, hobbies, plans. And it's hard to put those aside for others. We talk about this one a lot, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but I believe that generosity is the primary evidence of love. If you love someone, you will sacrifice for them. This is the one that my dad did so well. He was not perfect. But 
as a child, I knew that my father had placed his agenda, his priorities, his desires aside to make sure that we had what we needed. We never had nice things, ever. We were very poor when I was growing up. But my dad decided that he was gonna put first things first. It mostly played out in our education. Some things happened with my older siblings and my parents decided that in the Kansas City uh, school district, they needed to homeschool their kids. And so dad was a pastor at the time and he decided he was gonna homeschool his kids. The problem is in Kansas at the time, homeschooling was illegal. You could go to jail for homeschooling your kids at the time. And so my dad decided, well, he's going to homeschool his kids. It's going to happen. So he starts homeschooling his kids. He ends up going to court and all this stuff happens, all these long story. So eventually my dad figured out a way around the law. He decided that he was going to invite other families to bring their kids to him so he could homeschool them too. And they just called it a school because Christian schools were legal. So he started a Christian school so that he could homeschool his kids. Well, it turns out there were a lot of Christians in Kansas City at the time who were not happy about how the schools were going. So they decided that they were going to bring their kids to my parents to homeschool or Christian school. And the Christian school began to grow. Eventually, my dad could no longer pastor and lead the school. And so the school kind of became his full-time pastoring gig. And that was everything. My parents never made any money. I mean, this thing had... There, there was no income practically from this school, but they had decided that they were going to do whatever they had to do to make sure that their kids were raised well, with, raised under the truth of scripture. And he sacrificed for it. Can I read for you a kind of scary, crazy verse? First Timothy says, but those who won't care for their relatives especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Not have made a mistake, not are unwise, not even have sinned. If you don't provide for your household, you have denied the faith. Why? It proves that the love is not in your heart. It proves if you're not going to do whatever it takes to provide for your family, to work as many hours as you have to, to take whatever job you have to, to go to whatever extent you have to go to, to make sure you provide your family, then you're not, then you don't love them enough to do whatever it takes to provide for them. What is the primary act of Christianity? The primary act of Christianity is love. Well, how do we love? John 3, 16. For God so loved, what? He did what? What's the act? That he gave. He sacrificed. You got to give. That's the act of Christianity. Generosity is the foundational act of our faith. First Timothy continues, such people, those who don't provide for their family, are worse than unbelievers. Let's do a little experiment. If you have an iPhone, if you have an iPhone, nothing against you Androids, but they don't work. So if, if you have an iPhone, pull it out and do me a favor. Right there on the lock screen of your iPhone, there are two buttons down on the bottom. One is a flashlight and one is a camera. Everybody see it? Raise your hand if you see it, if you have an iPhone. 
Okay, it's on the lock screen, the like first screen. Pull, push that camera button and it'll open up your camera and then turn around the camera so that you see the selfie camera. Everybody see the selfie camera? Okay, good job. Step one done. Now go back to the lock screen. Okay, when you're back on the lock screen, you'll see those buttons on the again at the bottom. You see the flashlight and the camera. Go ahead and turn on the flashlight. Every turn on your flashlights if you got an iPhone. And hold them up like this. Christians, we are called to light the way for our kids. We've been given the truth of scripture. We've been taught at least some of the word. We know some of the story. We have learned some of the instructions and we have been called to light the way for our kids. Because here's the problem. We live in a very dark world and our world works very hard to get your kids to focus on themselves. You've seen a teenager lately who was not looking at their selfie cam? I love you all, but this is getting out of control. It's like, focus on yourself. It's all about you. You do, you discover yourself. Look deep within, right? This is the world's speak. This is their truth. What is your truth? Discover your truth and buy our stuff. Bow down to this celebrity and buy this stuff. The message of the world is, hey, kids, shut up. Don't speak truth. Don't say what you think is right. Shut up and buy our stuff and you will be better. Your life will be better. You will be happy. What does shut up and buy our stuff look like? What does an over-attention on self turn into? It turns into depression. Our world is designing, creating a bunch of depressed consumers. That's what their agenda leads to. Okay, leave your light on. Jesus said this, those who walk in darkness cannot see where they are going. Put your trust in the light while there is still time. Then you will become children of the light. Children of the light. Okay, with your flashlight still on, go back to the lock screen. Back to where you can see the two buttons on the bottom. Hold the light up. And on the count of three, not everybody at the same time, on the count of three, we're, leave your light on, but turn your camera on. Okay, ready? One, two, three, camera. What happens when you turn the camera on? The light goes out. You cannot shine the light while looking at yourself. You cannot shine the way for your children while staring at yourself, while focusing on yourself, while focusing on your desires and, you, and what you want in your life. You cannot try to get the glory and give the glory at the same time. Christians, we are called to be the light of the world. And we cannot be the light of the world as long as we're pointing people to us. We point people to Jesus. It's not about us. We sacrifice our glory. We, we sacrifice our glory for his glory. 
We don't take the easy way out. We sacrifice our comfort so that people can see Jesus. Most importantly, our children. Okay, next one. A good father is just. We stand against injustice. Whenever possible, we eradicate evil. We protect the innocent. We do what is right, even when it is not the popular thing to do. Psalm 37 says, The Lord loves justice, and he will never abandon the godly. He will keep them safe forever, but the children of the wicked will die. You ever notice you can't pretend at home for very long? Most people who live in a house with other people who have something to hide end up just retreating into solidarity a lot. They hide out a lot. They hide out. You, you got a teenager who's got something to hide. Where do they go? To their room. They spend their whole lives in their room. Why? They got something to hide. They're protecting something. They don't want you to find out. They isolate. When you're living in community, it's too hard to fake it. Christians, let's not just say we are good. Let's be good. Let's choose not to be hypocrites. Let's not just say what we believe we should do. Let's actually be caught doing it, not bragging about it. Let's live to the extent that our kids look at the way we are live and actually respect the way we live. How do you react when you see a cop while you're driving? You're driving down the road and you see a cop. What do you do? Kids, get your seatbelt on. What if we taught our kids not to pretend to do what's right, but actually to do what is right? What if we taught our kids that you should actually do what we believe you should do? Not cover things up, not hide, not just do what is right when other people are looking, not just be good when we're at church and then live a different life when we're at home, but actually live the life we say God calls us to live. We're not trying to be like the world. We're trying to be like God. I think this is one of the hardest things for me to do as a parent. Not to act correctly, but to ask my kids to act correctly. Because they come home from school, and what are they saying constantly? Well, so-and-so gets to do this. Well, they get to watch this movie, but they get to listen to this music, but they get to buy these things. And I'm telling my kids all the time, we are not trying to be like them. We're trying to be like God. We are different. We are intentionally different. We are unique. We are strange in this world. We have our own identity and it's not theirs. It's the identity that God has given to us, that he has placed in us. I don't look for my value from doing the things that the world is doing. For example, God tells us to tithe, to give 10% of our income back to him. I can hide I can pretend on this one all day long. I could tell you that I tithe and then not tithe, can't you? It's easy to hide this one. Other ones, it's less hard to hide. It's easy to hide this one. I can lie about this one. I can be a hypocrite on this one all day long. But I'm not called to say that I'm good. I'm called to be good, to do good, to become more like Christ, to become more sacrificial. 
Even my kids won't know if I tithe or not. I could tell them I am. They don't know, but I do it. Why? Because I'm on a journey to become like Christ. And my prayer is that my kids will see the way I live my life and that it will at least be a glimpse, an idea of the way Christ lived. Now, I'm not, I'm not gonna do it all the way. I'm never gonna be fully like God. I'm never gonna be fully, entirely sanctified. But I'm gonna get as close as I can. Finally, a good father is consistent. This is one that I read like every parenting book I've read, including the secular non-Christian ones. Everybody says, if you're going to parent, you got to be consistent. Why? We talked earlier about instilling that sense of security in your kids by the age of five. This is one of the primary ways you do it. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Consistent. Some people like to claim, well, God was this way in the Old Testament, that he was this way in the New Testament. He's the same God. He is consistent. So parents, if you make a rule, you enforce the rule. If you set a schedule, you stick, stick to the schedule. Consistency helps our kids to build confidence and to build security. So be consistent, especially in your discipline. Andrew Linder says, Consistency is the most difficult yet most important part of parenting. When you came in today, you were handed a card. If you'd pull that out for me and take a look at it. There was a study done by Kidman Science, uh, and they found that 25% of kids, when they leave the home, a Christian home, uh, and go away to college or get married or go to work or whatever they are, when they leave the home, they also leave the church. 75% of kids leave the church. But 25% of the kids-ish, when they leave the home, when they turn 18 or 19 or whatever age it is, stay faithful to what their parents have taught them. Stay faithful to church. And so what this study did is it looked into the lives of the 25%. Of those kids who stayed faithful to what they were taught from their parents, why did they stay faithful? What was different about the way they were parented and the way the 75% were parented? And here's what they found. They found five things. These are the things that the 25, now they didn't all get all of these and do great at all these all the time, but these are common things that they saw in the 25%. They found that those children from the 25% had dinner together with their family on a regular basis. Consistency. They found that they served with their parents inside the home, outside the home, at church. They found that they were given responsibilities, chores, tasks. They, every, every, life wasn't just handed to them. They were a part of making the home. They had devotions at home. There was actually a cutoff. You do this once or twice a week, it doesn't really make much of a difference. But you do it more than three times a week, four or more times a week, and devotions at home makes a huge difference. It's statistically. And then number five, they had believing mentors. They had somebody outside of the home, outside of the immediate family, who was a mentor to them, who could reinforce the things that the parents had taught them. Maybe it was a youth pastor or, or a pastor or just a, a friend of the family who was able to reinforce the things that were taught by the parent. So if we care about lighting the way for our kids, consistency, and these things. Whenever we talk about something like this, 
there's a significant number of people in the room and watching this who begin to feel guilt. Maybe you've parented for a while and, and you haven't done as good as you had hoped, or maybe you didn't know some of these things, so you, you didn't institute them into your parenting habits, and you begin to feel guilt. Run from that guilt. That is not helpful. That will not help you be a better parent. Don't parent from guilt. Because here's the truth. Parenting from guilt always has negative consequences. Either we become overly emotional in our feelings of guilt and parent overly emotionally, or, and this is what usually happens when we parent from guilt, we under-discipline. We think, I didn't do what I should have done, so I'm not going to expect you to do what you should have done. I know I did these terrible things as I was a teenager, so I shouldn't hold you to a higher standard. Don't parent from guilt. See the truth. See the biblical truth and point them to that. Don't let your feelings and your emotions determine the truth that you teach. Because ultimately, feelings of guilt are self-centered. It's all about me. It's all about how I'm feeling and what I did. But the, we ha, our goal has to be to get our attention off of us and onto the next generation. And get this, God is perfect. He's a perfect heavenly father, but not all of his kids turn out perfectly. What does that teach us? That even if you do it all right, even if you do it perfectly, they're not gonna turn out perfect. They still have free will. They still make decisions. You can't carry the full burden of the decisions that they've made. But in the whole process, we trust God because it's a messy, difficult, painful journey that we've decided to walk down when we have kids. But we choose to trust God to do everything we can and then trust him when we are incapable of doing what we know needs to be done. And for those of you who have made mistakes, it is not too late to grow, to learn. If they are still alive, you can still make a difference. And usually that requires us to kill our pride and make some changes. I know I said this. I, I, I know I let you have social media too early, but I need to take it away because I know what's best for you now. I didn't know back then. I know now. I know I said that we would go this direction, but I'm going to admit that I was wrong and say we need to go this direction. Kill your pride. And make a change. Because here's the big point. We have to get to know God so well that we begin to act like him and begin to parent like him to demonstrate the way he loves us, the way he interacts with us to our children. Because this parenting thing, it's a pretty big deal. We can't afford to get this one wrong. It's got to be a top priority for us. Many days I feel in parenting just totally overwhelmed. I don't know how to act. Both of my kids are so different and I did this with him, but it's not working with him. And it's just difficult. It's just hard. It's a messy journey. But I believe with all my heart that there is grace that God gives me when I make mistakes, when I fall short. So I'm going to do my best and I'm going to trust him with the rest. God, I pray today that you would draw us to yourself, that we would become more like you. We would reflect you to the world. Not to put on a show, but to truly be more like you.
God, I pray for our kids, that they would see the light, that they would see you, that they would run to you. And God, if there's anybody here who's listening and has a prodigal child, God, I pray that you would remind them to have grace and patience and unconditional love for their children. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.